0: So, Ladies and gentlemen boys and girls thank you for joining us again my name is Gregory Ball and this is the good trouble podcast where we talk to great people about the great things that they're doing and my guest today is a man that I feel like I've been I've been trying to hunt down to be on the podcast for a while but I'm happy he's here and he's here to share the good news and and I feel like it's almost appropriate to have have you here because you actually um, interacted and knew the man who was the inspiration for the for the title of the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Join join me in welcoming the Reverend Willie
1: Bodre. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, Greg. Uh, truly appreciate you having me on today, and uh, excited to to finally be on the podcast. (laughs) And uh, I love the title, Good Trouble, because John Lewis uh, is such a legend, uh, not only to me, but to so many. Uh, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised, and uh, I was blessed that he was my Congressman uh, my entire life. And uh, even more so blessed, I lived right down the street from him, so I could drive my bike right by his house all the time and know that the Congressman was right down the street. And so uh, it was a blessing to be able to see his work See his legacy, uh, his advocacy, and uh, and watch him always get in good trouble. Because that was a good framework for me uh, and my life as I continue to do the advocacy work I do and uh, and the engagement that I do for community and uh, and for 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 family.
0: So I know if 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 John Lewis is down a block, you couldn't get no trouble around you. You couldn't cut up at all in your (laughs) neighborhood.
1: Well, you know. you know we we were always trying to get in good trouble that's really <laughs> now you know him being in dc all the time you know you, you you would see him in and out you would know when he was there when he wasn't there mm-hmm. uh but you know you know people like john lewis you know you think of the legacy of the reverend dr martin luther king uh you, you think of maynard jackson uh first black mayor of Atlanta, Georgia. i think of andy young uh who uh, followed up as mayor and, and did so much work, uh, and all these civil rights legends and, uh, and sons of the civil rights movement, they really set, set the path for a city that was historically very, very dangerous and racist. Um, to be seen as somewhat the black Mecca of this country now, right, Uh, where everybody wants to get to Atlanta. Uh, And that that wasn't historically always the case. And so, you know, it it gives me hope to say that um, if folks come together, they organize, they're intentional about their actions, they're willing to collaborate and not work in silos, but work collectively for the greater good of our community, and to ensure that folks really can re- realize you know, that great mantra of equity and justice for all. Um, you know that, That's something that can be realized for not only uh, our communities across this country, but particularly for Black folks in this nation uh, who are continually fighting to address the social determinants um, that have been barriers in many ways and to try to liberate ourselves um, to ensure that each and every one of us and our families and our communities uh, can be healthy and whole uh, and have access and opportunity.
0: Yeah. So for, you know, let's, let's start and tell a little bit of the, of the, of the backstory. Cause I think that the, the journey for you to get to Boston is just, is just interesting. And for you to end up at 12th Baptist, um, considering your, wow. your son of Atlanta is, I always, I always am amazed when people from the South who are nice, warm weather climates come <laughs> up here and decide yeah. to stay. So, When you, um, when you finished high school, like, or tell me, tell me a little bit about when you were growing up, you know, obviously you were in this incredible neighborhood where people you're seeing kind of people who are doing the work on a regular basis. How did that inform you and kind of set you on your path?
1: Well, I always start my my, my parents. Um, I was blessed Mm -hmm. two loving parents. Um, my father was a pastor as well. He also, uh, was a a career counselor at the Atlanta job corp center for over 30 years. Um, you know, My mother uh, was an educator in Atlanta public schools. Um, I I was very blessed to grow up in a community in a neighborhood uh, in Southwest Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which uh, some know as the SWATs. Uh, Mm -hmm. Grew up in this neighborhood where I was able to see the great breadth of blackness. Um, from a child, uh, I remember going to Greenbrier Earn Learning Academies, and uh, and and early in the morning we learned "Lift Every Voice and Sing" as children. We learned, uh, we we learned our Pledge of Allegiance, as well as uh, you know, you know, we got to learn all the great great things about Black culture. And one of the things that they would play every single morning when we were children was James Brown say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud. And so that type of shaping and forming of uh, a firm I mean, my blackness uh, as a little black child only continued to blossom. Um, I went on to go to Continental Colony Elementary School, uh, which is Atlanta public school system. Ralph Johnson Bunch Middle School, uh, Benjamin Elijah Mays High School. I was a multi-sport athlete, uh, baseball and football primarily. Um, I grew up playing the saxophone uh, in my public school system uh, and uh, played that all the way until we went on to college and I still have a sax E flat alto at the house. Um, I, I you know, grew up, you know, in a community that was loving, but yet I also grew up in a community that that at times, you know, you recognize that there there were varied experiences within the black community. um, you know, my dad, my dad was my coach, and yet many of my friends, uh some, some of them didn't have fathers, and so my father stood in as a father figure for some of them. uh, and uh and you know, really seeing the differences. Uh, in our experiences, uh, made me acknowledge the great responsibility of this work that we do uh, being communal. Um, you know, undergirding my my beliefs has been greatly my faith, which was instilled to me by my parents. Uh, and you know, my parents were the first, I would say, uh, institution. I would say that that, and I would consider them a family as an institution that showed me how we as people who are in our varying positions can actually work together to create wholeness mm-hmm. in the midst of broken systems. Um, my, my mother was an educator. She she taught uh, at, you know, at George High School and which eventually became South Atlanta. And then she went to DM Thera High School. My dad was at the Job Corps Center. One of the first institutional fixes I ever saw uh, when I recognized that there was a social safety net that was broken for a lot of people was when there was ever a young person that dropped out of college high school in in my mother's high school and they were within her network. My mother could easily pick up the phone and instead of that young person finding themselves in a path that would more than likely lead them into a more difficult situation, that young person would leave the high school and my mother would call my father. And before the end of that day, that young person who dropped out of our systems that did not actually serve them in the best way they could was in job court the next day. Mm. And it showed me from the beginning that one, our systems don't speak to each other. And, and when our systems don't speak to each other, we miss people that should actually continue to be, uh, you know, given the opportunity to to find themselves and to grow and to have other opportunities to speak to them. And two told me that our systems don't fit every person. Um, and that many a times, you know, we have not thought through with great depth of how do we address these young people, these communities, and make sure that we are thinking comprehensively and with intentionality around the varied experiences that folks who are coming into our systems actually come into our systems with. The last thing it taught me was that people can actually make the difference,
0: mm.
1: that literally my mother calling her husband to say, this young person needs this opportunity. We couldn't do it here at the school for them, but I know that this other opportunity might be able to bless them. It might be able to help them. And, um, you know, and it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful arrangement for me to see as a young child saying, this is what my job is to do, that wherever I am positioned, if I see that something may not be working connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what that village mantra is really all about. That's what that that, that great idea, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to, to sustain a community. And we have to care about each and every person in our community so that if I can use my privilege, my access, my whatever power, you know, I consider myself or anybody has to help someone else and to, to connect the dots and to create extra netting so that they don't fall through, that's what we should be doing. And so, um, you know, that was, that was, that's my, you know, one of the favorite things I, I, when I reflect on seeing my parents, uh, this willingness to give, this willingness to use your, uh, your position to uplift others. And that's so important for me and and the work that I do. Um, I leave, I leave uh, Mays High School, uh, which, uh, you know, if you notice in Atlanta, many of our high schools are named after civil rights legends in Africa yes. and African-American greats. Um, our rival's high schools was Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. So, you know, I mean, in
0: Frederick Douglass, if that was where, what, Killer Mike, T.I. That's, they were yeah, there, right? yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And then, uh, you know, at Mays, Goody Mob, and all those folks, you, yeah. know, you know, TLC, some of them folks, Yeah, they all came out of Mays. Um, you know, we have, you know, we have a very storied history in Atlanta public schools, and we're, we're grateful for that. Um, you know, CeeLo went to my middle school. <laughs> so yeah. but, but but when we think about the you know, I left that school and I was thankful for that affirmation of, you know, Dr. Mays, who's you know, one of the greatest presidents of of uh, Morehouse College, he's one of the, you know, frowning framework framers of, you know, many of the shaping and molding of young minds. He was Dr. King's mentor, right? Um, and having that that framing and culture shape us um, gave me something to have a lot of pride in as I move forward. Um, I was blessed to come to Washington, D.C., uh, and, and I went on to Georgetown University, uh, where I played football as a four-year varsity Division One football player, and I was thankful to play, and it was a great experience. It was one of my dreams in my life uh, was to play Division One football, and I was able to live out that dream, um, and it was, a, it was a great time to move to D.C., because when I moved there, we were in the midst of a war, and George W. Bush was president. <laughs> and mm-hmm. during my time in DC, um, you know, the nation was really uh trying to understand itself, right? Um, you know, we start to see a lot of different things happening. Uh, we see, you know, these movements that are you know, that are bubbling across the nation. And I think now looking retrospectively, you know, where we are now, I can kind of see you know, some of these things were happening even then. Um and you know, a guy named Barack Obama ends up <laughs> running for president while I'm in college. And you know, on my 21st birthday, he, he he becomes the president of the United States. Wow. Well, um <laughs> I remember with, you know, clarity running to the White House that night that we won um, and it just being such a um, exciting moment, but yet, you know, something that, you know, folks said would never happen, uh, happening while you're in that city present in that moment. And so while I was in DC, I was very active on campus, active in campus ministries, active in campus advocacy, you know, serving on, you know, you know, you know, the Black Student Alliance, or I was a Black house resident at Georgetown University, which is a very storied legacy at our university. I was active in my fraternity, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, a root to the bros. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it was all of those experiences that really shaped me. I was also a student teacher because I thought that I was going to uh, go follow my mother's footsteps and be the youngest principal ever and save the world through education. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I worked at different schools in Southeast DC, uh, which is where I continued to do work even after I graduated from college. And, you know, while I was there in college, it was really, the shaping and molding. I always say, when I got dropped off in Georgetown, the only thing I had a real good concept of was AI, Pat Ewing, Alonzo Mourning. You know, you know, you know. Used to see, used to see Ice Ice Cube in the Georgetown, you know, you mm-hmm. know, jacket and the and the fittets. And then when I got there, it was more like they dropped me off in the episode of Saved by the Bell, and I. Didn't realize. <laughs> So
0: you so wait, so so you thought you were going to Hillman and it well, well, ended up in say by the I
1: I you know you know you're going to the chocolate city, so you're thinking oh, you're gonna get way more. And there was Georgetown is a different community within within DC, and it is a very pristine, very well-to-do elite community, elite white community at large, which has great black history in that community as well, which is so interesting. But uh, when I got there on my visit, I was like, "Oh, this is not what I thought it was." Mm-hmm. And it's the Georgetown of AI, but it's also the Georgetown of Bill Clinton, right? And so, yes. uh, two, two uh, different, two different energies, two different experiences, um, and it, and, and it, but but it was it was where I needed to be um the good thing about like my cousin she was over at Howard at the time so you know you know we were we were able to con- continue to build and grow together um as first cousins but you know it was it was a school i needed to be at um and the conversations um the tutelage from my professors um you know i had some great professors who really pushed me um you know i i went to school studying uh i went to school biochemistry thinking i wanted to be a doctor <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. And I left as a double major in English and sociology and I was trained and raised. You know, Michael Larry Dyson was one of my professors who I thank God for entering into my life and really helping me ask new questions, think more critically about certain things. Uh, you know, I think about uh, you know, Ryan Scott Heath, who really pushed us on, you know, Afrofuturism and really framing things in a particular fashion. Um, you know, I was just really, really blessed. Uh, Yolanda Gibbons, who was my sociology professor, who really, really laid out. What with intentionality, um, you know, frameworks of sociology and how those frameworks interacted with our systems and even our real lived experiences here today and put us in the field in D.C. to start actively trying to figure out how do we put our actual learnings in action in communities. And so, you know, I was really blessed with folks who was really engaged and interested. uh,
0: Oh, wait a second. So I'm just thinking about that because as I'm listening to this, you go from this um foundation in this loving community in Atlanta, and then which is 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 beautiful and is is 360 degrees of blackness that you're mm-hmm. you're surrounded in and, and it's and it's it gave it give I would imagine that it would give you the fuel to be able to go into a space like Georgetown, maintain yourself. And then you go and you you discover these incredible professors that that built you up even more. You know, I think many people that I know have been in, in, in those spaces after that, it's like, okay, I'm going back to Atlanta or they're putting their roots in DC. You know, I know for you, your next step was to come here into the Boston yeah. area. So how did that, what was it that opened up that door that made Boston even a possibility for you? And what, <laughs> you know, cause I'm, I'm sure if you had one conception about DC, <laughs> then you had to have a, a thought process around what Boston was like as well just like you said you saw ai and out Al- and Alonzo Morton
1: that means you saw Bird Mikhail and, <laughs> and everybody else. Well well it, it was more different than that right you know if I can you know I don't want to take too much time here you know but I don't want to make it like rosy neither right it was mm-hmm. also the first time in a classroom where I was the only only black kid.
0: Mm.
1: I had never in my life had a white classmate before I got to Georgetown. Wow, really? life In my life. I can count the number of white teachers, and I know them by name, that I ever had in my life before I went to Georgetown. I only had one white coach on a staff in my life before I went to Georgetown. My primary care physician was all Black, and they were all Black women, actually. And so I had no concept that there was a, you know, a paucity of blackness in in the mm-hmm. medical field because that's all I knew. My best friend's dad was a lawyer. You know, I I, I just didn't know, you know, that mm-hmm. we weren't always. I've never had a white mayor before I moved to Boston, <laughs> and so that's right
0: because you said from Manor, from from Jackson in seventy four to the time you left,
1: it's been nothing but black mayors there. I'm a black man, but even when I was in D.C., it was nothing but black mayors, and yeah. so. Um, you know, this concept of, of blackness, not being at least engaged in the, in the dynamics of power, I had no, no idea about, cause that wasn't my lived experience. My lived experience was blackness can be whatever it wants to be. It's just, are you going to work hard for the access and opportunity to get there? Um, but, but I, I just didn't know. And so I, I, even, even at Georgetown, you know, there were, there were moments where I felt things I never felt before. I never knew what it was like to feel anxious about answering questions in the classroom because you're the only one and you feel like you're the, you're representing your whole entire race when you ask this question or you answer this question. I never, I never felt that until I was 18 years old where, you know what, I should have answered that question. I remember raising my hand. And then pulling it back down. And then somebody else giving the exact same answer I was about to give. And I was like, dang, I'm going to do it next time. I never had that feeling until I was 18 years old in college. So there was a lot of things, even around whiteness within the constructions of my mind that were both mediated or framed for me that I didn't even know I needed to process through. And those were the things that I had to work through to get to the place around the day where I can walk in any room and I can be my authentic self without having to compromise the ways in which I navigate, and I and 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 that comes with both sharpening education, but some of that just comes with lived experiences of peeling back layers of self, and sometimes you have to peel back layers of self that you don't even know you need to peel back, and that's what that's what college was for me. And so you know we 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 did a lot of advocacy on campus. I mean Georgetown was was great, but it also had its issues, right? You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't rosy. And, you know, I remember, you know, we us, you know, rallying for Jenna Six. I remember us, you know, pushing back against some of our more conservative peers who were putting out, you know, toxic racist commentary. I, I remember this type of advocacy that we had to have for even Black students on campus. And so, you know, for me, when I left school, I was trying to figure out how am I going to, one, do something I really love to do. And then, two, how do I actually address some of the issues that I was even struggling with, even while I was in college? Like, you know, how do we fix this brokenness in our systems, in our governance, in our communities, um, and make sure people really can live whole? That was the, that was the goal. And and so um, when I when I left college, I went to go work in Southeast D.C. Now, D.C. is still a at the time was still you know a black, black city with a little bit of oat milk in it, you know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. it, now it's a little bit more mocha latte. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's not quite the chocolate city it used to be, but you know, black folks are still there in great numbers. Um, but, but during that time, I was like, you know what? I had already been working at uh, Assumption Catholic, which is all black uh, school for, for young black kids. I had already mm-hmm. been working at Baloo and helping to teach some acting because I, I did some acting in college and I was a part of the black theater ensemble and, you know, you know stage manage and was a lead actor in some many of our plays. So I was engaged in that way. And then so I said, you know what? I'm, I'm really trying to be, be a, be a educator, and I went to to work at the C Public Charter School in the Southeast DC. I taught reading comprehension to middle schoolers, um, and because this school was a quasi boarding school in the city of DC. They would board from Sunday to Thursday, Sunday to Friday, and they would go home on the weekends. And so um, I'll be uh, a resident advisor. So my job literally was from 3 p.m. to almost midnight every night <laughs> and, uh, and working with these young men. Um, it was a joy. It was fun, you know, playing, growing. But I realized the limitations of even just centering just education, that there were other social determinants when these young men went home that they were trying to work with. There were other social determinants when the young ladies went home that they were dealing with that they brought back into that school. And even trying to create a quasi boarding experience for them did not detach them from those real lived experiences of themselves and their families in DC. And so to be honest with you, I was really wrestling um, and I had always been grappling with a calling to ministry. Um, Even as a child, I always kind of knew I felt the uh, you know the calling of God on my life. I just didn't know how I was gonna get there. My dream was to go to the league, and if I didn't go to the league, I was gonna be like Jamie Foxx and go to Hollywood and go try to be a, a, a superstar. That was my dream, right? Yeah, you know, I can sing. I could, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be a Jamie. Foxx. Yes, we know you can <laughs> sing. We know you can
0: sing. I, like I have it. to. I have <laughs> to share before you go. I have to share this piece with the audience. So, one of the ways that I developed my my deep appreciation for for the Reverend is. In our early interaction, after I came on to King Boston at King Boston at the time, now Embrace Boston, we were putting together the program where we were um, where we were gifting uh, to 12th Baptist the the million dollars that we had raised as part of uh, the Embrace Project. So as we're discussing the pro- the project, we were talking about how we wanted to infuse music into it, and which is something that at Embrace we always try to do, and in the discussion. Um, I think that we were talking with you and you said, well, you know, I'll talk to our, our minister of music. And if not, then, you know, I'll just get up and sing. And <laughs> <laughs> so this is the first time I'm really talking to the Reverend at this time. We had met and passed it a few other times, but when he said he was going to sing, I did not censor myself. And I just asked, well, can you sing? <laughs> and And <laughs> And I remember you looked at me like, what? Uh, yes. <laughs> and then and then when we did the actual ceremony, you got up there and you sang, you let, you led, led the song. But I feel like you were singing extra hard that day. Just <laughs> let me know what it was.
1: <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> shout out to all my vocal teachers from my mama to my to miss uh Miss Bradley Miss Penn all the shout people. out to them because you listen
0: he he has done he has done y'all proud he shut me up that day <laughs> No, nah, it was it was beautiful it was a beautiful day um yeah so we, that was crazy. we were talking we were talking about the transition from uh and where you kind of got to that book and i yeah. was gonna ask you about i was actually gonna ask you about the 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 ministry piece of it because like you said you grew up as as a pk oh and you um you know and i know it's it you and your brothers and then obviously you had this whole community of people and it was almost like i know at least one of one of the kids in a, in a a preacher's family always ends up going into the <laughs> ministry. So I've seen that with my cousins and yeah. their dad. And now my cousin is out in, in, in Chicago leading, in, leading a, a large church out there. So I know that, you know, you had done all these things. You had been deeply involved in sports. We were deeply involved in the arts. What was it that kind of, you know, talk to me about when you kind of came to that realization that, the 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 ministry was going to be a part of your life as well was it what was it a situation where you felt like you were pulling away from it just to see what you could do outside of it or was something you just it really just came to you like you know i it's i i
1: surrendered to it A, a little bit of both right um so I'm, I'm a proud PK. Um, I'm in the eldest of three, three boys. Uh, mm-hmm. I should say grown men. Now we're all grown men. Um, myself, Willie Bodrick II, Winston Bodrick and Weldon Bodrick. And we're all here in Boston. All with, W's. Uh, which all W's all named after my dad, Willie Bodrick. And and now I have a son named Willie Bodrick III. So, uh, so that's, that, that's a part of that legacy. Um, you know, we, we come from families that are deeply rooted in faith and uh, and as a PK, um, actually, the first my first interaction with the arts and my first interactions with governance, my first interactions with uh, community were in the church. Um, mm. My first interactions, you know what I mean? My, my mother's an educator, so you know, from from the from the womb, she's been weird reading to us and all those great things. But you know, some of the first times, you know, we're Sunday school. You know, happens before most kids go to real school, right? Absolutely. So, um, you know, you know, so much of who I was was shaped in ecclesial spaces, Um, you know, all your life as a child, you know, when you're a PK, there are way more eyes on you. There are a lot more uh, stereotypes and biases that you have to work through. Uh, There's always somebody telling you they're going to call your mom and daddy on you and something like that, you know, so Mm -hmm. you kind of learn to grow up under a microscope in ways that most kids don't have to. Um, And to some degree, that that was a blessing, particularly for the lifestyle in which I've ended up in Um, But in other ways, it was very, very hard as a child um, to try to process just being regular and being normal (laughs) and being able to say, you know what, as a kid, you're going to have your experiences just like every other kid and you're going to figure those things out. But many a times there has been, there was levied upon you an expectation of perfection that was just hard to get through. And so much of um, my childhood, you know, I think I wanted to be perfect for my parents. You know what I mean? I wanted to to, Mm -hmm. to make sure I made them proud and represented them. And then I think at at times I wanted to be human and (laughs) figure that out and Mm -hmm. work through who who I was and growing up into the, to the man that I was becoming. Um, I think that um, I always knew that I personally had a calling of God on my life. I just didn't want to be pressured into it. And, you know, the beautiful thing about it was that my father and my mother never did that to me you know there was an expectation that we we're going to be in choir we're going to the ushers we're going to go all the all the vacation mm-hmm. schools you know you know there was you know we were going to be in church we was in church we, we church church
0: you was a church You was a church on tuesday wednesday thursday yeah.
1: it, it was points where i was there four times a week four times out of seven you know what I mean and extra long on sundays right because you might have a second service and you might be traveling to another church to do a joint service and so it used to be a lot i churched a lot growing up mm-hmm. um which I think was a part of why I was like, I don't think I want to do this when I get old. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know how much the demand of the work took. Um, Mm -hmm. The second piece was just, um, I was really worried about other people's expectations of me. Um, And I really, you know, as you go through your growing pains, you know, you don't know what true liberation feels like um, and trusting in God and having faith that where he's taking you. Um, is going to bring you a sense of comfort, not a sense of restriction. And I didn't know that um, because I was still maturing to get to a place. Um, The last thing was just me figuring out that this is what I'm called to do. And for me, not for everyone, but for me, it was realizing that in all these places where I was trying to find, quote unquote, me and find desires to do the things I wanted to do, that I was really running from the very place that would have gave me the most peace. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, there was a moment, you know, there were some moments in my life that really, I would say, brought me to my knees and made me really ask some real hard questions of myself. <laughs> and I remember when I uh when I really started to feel it was probably right around the, the, my last year of college transitioning into um into you know graduating into man you know into, into life right you might become a young professional haven't figured it out yet and I remember you know just really having this deep dive in biblical texts and all these things I remember trying to you know figure out the intersections between you know race and ethics and all these things I was studying religion, politics you know sociology and I'm like you know this one space and religion allowed me to engage all these multidisciplinary, ideas and thoughts that I was grappling with um and bring hopefully struggle with some sense of understanding for them um and I just know you know spirituality has always been a building block of not only myself but you know our people um and how we grapple with the divine and understanding the divine's reality and real living um, much of our liberation movements have been rooted in faith movements um mm-hmm. You think of James Hal Cohn, you know, and you know, Black Liberation of uh, theology. And you think about, you know, so many others who have helped to build out that, you know, you can't you can't ignore faith even if people have struggled with faith, right? And so I think um that that began to bring me some clarity. And so um I remember mm-hmm. my best friend the line brother said to me one day, like, man, Willie, who are you fooling, man? She, Go ahead and go to the Vinnie's crew. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, and it was kind of you know that moment where it was like the only person you lying to is yourself. Will like walk into this mm-hmm. and trust God and not trust what other people might think about you. Just go in faith. And so um, you know, once I got to a place of clarity, um, I decided to apply to two schools and um and I ended up at Harvard. Um, I got in the Harvard Divinity School while I was working at this school. And I and I was, you know, it, was it was exciting. I think I found out one week before my, my birthday or something like that, that I got in. And so it was mm-hmm. a pretty cool little experience. Um, And that's what that's what brought me to Boston. I would have never I was still trying to figure out what was next in my life. But, you know, God said, nah, I know what I'm sending you. And
0: uh, before we get before we get into you getting here, how is it received? Because, like, again, we talk about a preacher's kid. (laughs) This is something that's in your life on a regular basis. And I would imagine that if you kind of were it got to a point where like your friends could look at you and say, hey, why don't you quit fooling yourself? Then I know your parents must have seen some of that same thing. So what was their reaction to it when
1: they when they when you decided to tell them about Divinity School? I think my parents always knew mm. um, I think they always you know it was like it was a matter of time, um, and I think they had a lot more poise in understanding that you know, in due time in God's time, it would happen. um, there's a lot of people who always say, I always knew this was gonna happen, so that was kind of some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what I was most afraid of was my peers, man, you know, you know growing up, you know and, and coming into this maybe not in the folks I grew up in high school with, but just more so like the people I was growing up with as an into adulthood and figuring out adulthood with. And I was just worried what they were going to say about me. And, you know, and what expectations were they going to have of me? And I, and I had to realize that, you know, they were figuring life out just like me. Yeah. (laughs) And the burdens that I was placing upon myself were unreasonable. And yet, the peace I found when I just let go was liberating. And so, um, you know, people people might have a lot of opinions, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. But, you know, I knew that this is what I need to do. And the interesting thing is that, like, once I was dialed in, like, like any, like I didn't do with doing sports or anything else, you know, I was, I, I started to put my blinders on, man, and I went to the lab. And I was saved for, from the time in 2011 when I found out that's where I was going in life. Um, you know, I, I've been literally in kind of one constant conversation since then that's continued to evolve and develop according to the things I've been experiencing, but it's been one thread line since 2011. And I, you know, I feel like it's been building upon itself each and every year. And, and when I got to Boston, it was sort of a, a beautiful thing because I didn't know anybody here. Like I had, I had the only person I actually knew I only knew because my chapter brother knew this young lady who was at Boston college who gave me an opportunity to just kick it on her couch until my apartment in Brighton actually mm-hmm. opened up for me. But I, I didn't even know her. And, and I always thank her even to this day for, you know, having enough faith to let me just crash on her couch because they weren't my, the landlord was going to let me move in a week early. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm thankful for where I am so much. So because, when I got here, I had no connections. I knew no one. It was a wilderness to me. It really was. Um, and I just had. Well, to you go. were in Brighton, so of course it was a wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, so much, so much ignorance. I didn't even know where to live. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, mm-hmm. he, and my mom and dad they were like, this, "This housing price is crazy." I was like, "Well, let's find the most reasonable one." And I had a one bedroom on Swarthmore Road in Brighton, right down the street from Cleveland Circle. I could jump on the 86, get into the Harvard Divinity School and get back home. That's all I knew. Um, I drove my look my car up here. I had an uh, a, old, oh, it was a 90 something, 99, 2000 Explorer or something like that. And I, I was here on a wing and a prayer and a lot of love. You know what I mean? And I told myself, you know, you know, I just don't believe that God puts me in any situations without intentionality. And so there wasn't a coincidence I was hearing. I just had to you know, work through understanding what was here for me to do. And uh, I think it's one of the best decisions and acts of faith that I've made in my life. And now how, I, I, this
0: is amazing to me that, uh, and I could imagine the culture shock. And, and you did what I think a lot of people do that that colors their view of Boston. A lot of Black people that colors their view of Boston just like you said, you had an opportunity, you came to the city mm-hmm. and you picked the place that was the most affordable, but the most disconnected from the black community. <laughs> so you got there and you're like, oh, what, there are no black people in Boston. Cause you wasn't, there was none around. So, you know, it's interesting you
1: say that <laughs> Greg, cause I think you're, you're, you're on to something with that. You know, you move into a disconnected space. Um, it was for me, interestingly, it was a good transition Mm -hmm. because that's the B.C. community and B.C. community reminded me a lot of the Georgetown community in in some ways. Right. And so I knew the college dynamic. Right. I was like, all right, cool. This is like a college campus extension. I get it. I mean, so I knew I can navigate. So I didn't feel the desires to be like, all right, I'm just going to dive right into community work because I was like, I'm here to get a degree. I need to get this degree. I need to get this done. Mm -hmm. I'm in this academic space. It wasn't until my second semester where I really started to feel isolated. Mm. And I was like, man, I was trying to catch the bus down to D.C. every weekend if I could. You know, some weekends I just. And all
0: you had to do was take the 66 the other direction.
1: You know what I'm saying? I know I mean, that. You was man. out there. You ain't know
0: where to get a haircut. You ain't know what was going
1: on. Man, I was going, man, I was going to because I had some classmates that was here. And I was going all the way to Medford for a haircut and because it was right down the backside of somerville and that's yeah. what, that's what they would tell me that's why all the guys went to go get their haircut i used to go to the spot in cambridge but they were taking too long i was like i can't wait three hours for no haircut bro so i was going to medford and uh and, and so you know you know there's a there's a learning gap of any any space you walk into mm-hmm. the good thing is that like you know i never navigate spaces with the expectation that i'm gonna be i'm not giving it myself in good faith. So I came into the space in good faith. One of the best blessings I had, two people that I really want, I'm thankful for. You know, one of them is a, is a classmate named Charles Hill who went to Morehouse. Um, you know, I took, I was taking a preaching class from Reverend Dr. Charles Gilchrist Adams, who they call the Harvard Hooper. And he, he was an amazing, an amazing, amazing man and professor and preacher. And I think God put me, put him in my life to 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 sort of sharpen my tools um and from a preaching perspective he did that um he gave me just insights and touch points to really 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 hone my gift um and it was very just affirming and would have me over his house and all of the great things right mm-hmm. and the second person that i was introduced to uh and this was through charles hill charles hill was one friend who told me he's like man you gotta take this class you gotta take this class i was like and it was a class at the law school because at Harvard, you can, when you're a graduate student, you can take classes anywhere. Even at the undergrad, you can take classes at any of the schools. And so I was at Divinity School, so I went to to the law school to take this class. And the class was entitled "Revitalizing America's Urban Cities," mm. and the professor was Professor Charles Ogletree. And in that class, um, I gained you know, I gained a family member in many ways. So, I mean, Charles Overtree became one of the closest mentors. Uh, And, you know, he would always say, Willie, you know, you you need to come over to this law school, man, because he just really took took to me in ways that I needed at that time, being away from family, uh, not having enough affirming spaces. And then, uh, you know, the most important person uh, at Harvard at that time that really, really, really just took me in, uh, between him and Ogletree, Ogletree and Adams they just really really took me in in ways that um I needed you know it was uh, would you know well, we have lunch almost every other week you know what I mean it was just like it was a good relationship and uh and you know when when the cast of the wire came I was there with them you know what I, mean? when, when I was, was
0: there that day too
1: yeah 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 I man. was
0: there that day too I actually did, right. I interviewed um
1: uh Jamie Hector yeah, 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 yeah. So or, or when uh you know not only just the wire, but when um when 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 you know Trayvon Martin case stuff was happening um and Trayvon Moms was there, we you know I was there. You know, I mean had you know pictures with these people. Um, you know, when when you're thinking about just you know how someone made that place, he made Harvard feel better for me. Um, Not that I wasn't doing, I did very well academically, but I didn't feel community always. And that was a huge piece um, in having him. And in that class was also uh, a young bright rising star that you may have all met before named Michelle Wu. Um, and it was Professor Ogletree that introduced me and Michelle over 12 years ago, and we've been we've been good partners in this work ever since. And so, um, and then the, the 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 most important person I would say over you know, my time at Harvard that I never expected to meet was Reverend Doctor Arthur T. Gerald Jr. Um, he was in my preaching class and. Uh, upon an invitation to come to 12th Baptist Church because he heard me preach my last sermon um and I left my hat because I went to go move my car which was parked illegally (laughs) and uh and I I was like man I left my favorite hat I ran back to get my hat after preaching and uh and he said man something told me to come back as well and Mm. and he said uh I want to invite you to you know this church. I used to I passed a little church in Boston. I was like, now I know I'm like it's not such a <laughs> he kind of undersold it, huh? <laughs> he really undersold it. He's like, I passed a small church in Boston. And um, you know, we'd love to have you come by at that time. We, we have Second Sundays, our youth that was youth Sunday. And I said, I would be glad to come by. And you know, they sent me a formal letter, and I remember preaching. And ever since that time, uh, I've been at 12th Baptist Church. So since 2012 to, to this day, uh, and uh during my time I've I've been intern, I've been uh <laughs> assistant pastor, associate pastor, youth young adult, all those different things. And I went from you know being an intern all the way to senior pastor. And so uh, you know, 12 Baptist Church has played such a vital role in me not only leaving Brighton and moving to Roxbury but uh uh, thank the lord
0: for that you know what I'm saying
1: but but deeply engaging me in uh in this city and in uh in its operations um and and you know from from there I've been active in politics um you know whether it was working um, for, you know, the first Black, uh, well, what, what I thought was going to be the first Black woman mayor at the time was Charlotte Gola Ritchie and doing lit drop for her, in 2013, all across the city and, and doing strategy work uh with Daryl Smith up there in Grove Hall, uh, to eventually becoming deputy financial director for Martha Copley um and her campaign and working for the party, and then working for Deval Patrick's Together Pack and um and then eventually finding my way to work for. What at the time was the Attorney General of Massachusetts, uh, who was Mara Healy and, uh, you know, helping to run outreach and engagement for the state at 26. Um, before that, I was at the Olympic bid, in uh, Boston 2024. So, I mean, it, it just really blossomed in my engagements um, and then uh, and, and, and really, 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 you know, put me in the center of, you know, Boston civic and social life here uh, in the city.
0: But how I, now it's interesting because so many times we hear people, you know, especially here in America, we talk about the separation of the church and state, but it feels like for you that especially with a with a with a place like 12th Baptist, is like there's a synergy between um being active in the community and being advocates in the community and the faith. Like how were was, was that one of the reasons why like 12th felt like the place for you to be?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, I I didn't know with great depth the history of 12th Baptist until I came to 12th Baptist. Um, funny story, um, my first year at Divinity School uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I had a roommate at this preaching conference um, by the name of Shagun Iduba. Wow. And, and uh, he and my brother were both at Morehouse College at the same time. Uh, when we were roommates and while I was, a, I was at Harvard Divinity School at the time. And he was like, yeah, you got to come by my church one day, da, 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 telling me all this great history. And I never put two and two together that that was the church. So the first wow. time preaching at 12th, um, the first person I see on the front row is guess who? <laughs> wow. and, so, and shout out to Shigun, who's uh, our chief of economic empowerment and he's doing amazing work for the city. Um, But, you know, when I when I got here, you know, it's interesting because, you know, being in D.C., um, I feel like there were moments among my life where God kind of put little hits along the way. Mm -hmm. There's a plaque of Leonard Grimes in D.C., and it's in the area um, and uh, between somewhere in the areas between Georgetown and Foggy Bottom It's a plaque. And it's of Leonard Grimes. Leonard Grimes is actually the first pastor of 12th at the church um, in wow. 1848, um, after I tell you this beautiful history story of us. But, you know, understanding Leonard Grimes and seeing that, I know I saw that before. And so when I got to 12, I was like, why does this name sound so familiar? I go back to D.C. and I remember reading this plaque while I was in college of Leonard Grimes. And I knew exactly where it was. And I was like, man, he'd been dropping, God's been dropping hints on me the whole time. And I just missed them. Oh, I just didn't realize the, the significance mm-hmm. of them. Um, you know, what what really drew me to 12 was Pastor Gerald, to be honest with you, but really what kept me and what was so promising was the great history. I mean, we, we, we date our history all the way back to 1805, uh, the African meeting house. Right. And, you know, it's, You know, our church is is an amazing story of, you know, these great folks who were definitely committed to creating spaces for Bostonians, particularly Black spaces. Um, And one of those first spaces is the African Meeting House, which became the African Baptist Church. And when you think about the history of our church, you got to talk about the Reverend Thomas Paul and Reverend Thomas Paul. Uh, is the one, along with Cato Gartner and MC Cipio, they do the work of building a Black community and, and building a Black faith space. They were once in Franklin mm-hmm. Hall, and then eventually in fanuel Hall, and they build this budding Black faith community. Um, and, and for from 1805 all the way to about 1838, <laughs> You know, where George Black becomes pastor, you know, the first African Baptist church becomes the first independent Baptist church of color. And in 1838, as you know, when you think about the history of our city, um, there was a lot of things happening. And what's most active is this conversation around slavery. Um, Yeah what are we going to do about slavery? Um, and we began to see this development of uh, advocacy. These abolitionists and the African media house is one of those main places where these abolitionists are, are anchoring themselves. And yet within the church, as George Black is pastoring the African uh, Baptist church, he changes the name to the first independent, independent Baptist church of color. And the church is growing, but what's also growing is the schism Around slavery. Should the church be active in it? Should the church not be active in it? Some scholars suggest that this is the main reason why we have a church split in 1840. Well, 1840, we have 36 members withdraw along with the pastor. So the African Baptist Church is now split in two in Smith Court. And if you have been to Smith Court, you know it's a really tight space. <laughs> um. They're split into in Smith Court and two years both churches are arguing about which church is the bona fide church hmm. so i always made the joke if you remember when uh you know uh i always watched the temptation movie for you remember that was at one point there were two groups yes two temptation groups they had split it was similar to that these two churches and um unfortunately george black dies um, in 1842, and they tried to reconcile the two congregations under the name Belknap Belknap Church, Belknap Baptist Church, and they couldn't do that. The old church excommunicated the folks who were who had went away with the pastor. It, you know, it was a very complicated story. Mm-hmm. And much of this around the issues of slavery, they argue. They try to bring John T. Raymond. Um, he pastors for some time and eventually leaves and then so so you have two different churches happening so the african meeting, uh, baptist church continues um and then you have this other congregation that is uh who also claimed to be the be the be the african baptist church and they're struggling with this the congregation that separates is struggling until about 1848 a guy named Leonard Grimes comes up out of New Bedford. Leonard Grimes is an amazing character because for two years he's incarcerated because he was helping black folks escape slavery and go to Canada through his business. And mm. so he's arrested for two years. He's in New Bedford. I got some some thoughts that he's in New Bedford because he's such a character on the Underground Railroad. And if you remember, Frederick Douglass has a big house in New Bedford as well, just mm. like he does in DC. Um, and he they asked him to come up to pastor this church and he accepts. And uh, and from there on, um, 12 Baptist Church becomes known as uh, one of the anchors of the Underground Railroad movement. Um, So much so that in 1850, in 1851, the church becomes, the the name starts to be talked about as the uh, Fugitive Slave Church. And they Mm -hmm. were called the Grimes Church because this is where folks found refuge on this way. Um, Leonard Grimes is such an you know, instrumental character, because he's also the one who really pushed the governor to make sure that the 54th Regiment was there, and 12th Baptist Church was one of the recruitment posts for the 54th Regiment. Um, and so what? when you're talking okay. about this, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> this, this is
0: incredible, but, but then the thing that's amazing to me is that here you are kind of the, sh- the, the, the shepherd of all this history, and yeah. now you're taking it, into the spaces that you're going to it right now and, and kind of building on that legacy for you. What, what is your mindset and what is your thought process as now you're kind of shepherding and building on that same legacy? Like what are the things that you want to kind of focus on and kind of build upon for, for the church?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, it's important to to contextualize this history. Um, yes. There's a couple of things I just need to let to list. George, no, go, please. George Washington Williams, the second pastor of 12th Baptist Church, he writes the first history book of African-American history in this country. He's also the character that's featured in the Tarzan movies by Samuel L. Jackson. That's George Washington Williams. He goes on to be a great lawyer and a great you know, politician and great leader for this nation and holds Leopold accountable for the, the human rights crimes that he commits, um, you, you have to lift up the name of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Michael E. Haynes, um, who were both uh, under the leadership of the Reverend William Hunter Hester, who was friends with Daddy King and uh, and he and his wife, Beulah Hester, they, they are important figures and the, the shaping of the space. You got to lift up mm-hmm. the name, but Dr. Matthew A. N. Shaw, who was a physician and he, had, he was a physician at Boston City Hospital and eventually left due to the racism and continued to build out the, uh, his practice at the church and, and serve this community. You gotta lift up, uh, you know, many names, Reverend Dr. Gerald and others who have invested. And so, um, you know, when, when I think about our history and what we've done, I, I, I think about all that great work, You know. And the work of so many folks who helped bring this along. Um, you know, when you, when you're thinking about what we need to do in this moment, you know, I, I came into the pastorate at probably a very tumultuous time. Um, COVID nineteen, um, mm-hmm. and and what we knew at that time was COVID exacerbated what we already knew were preexisting conditions that were happening in our community. Yes. Not only did people need spiritual healing, they lead, they needed literal physical healing as well. Absolutely. And so one of the things that uh, 12 Baptist Church has always been has been a space for uh, thinking critically about how do we both bring about both spiritual and, uh, and spiritual wholeness as well as physical and social wholeness to our community. Um, we saw that in, in COVID where we went straight to work. Um, we knew that, you know, the vaccine wasn't going to be there for some time. So we knew folks needed opportunity. They needed jobs. They needed, they need, uh, they needed food. They needed healthcare. Um, the reality is that was, there was a lot of, you know, employment insecurity. There was a lot of food insecurity. There was housing insecurity. And what we did was rolled up our sleeves and we fed um, through our food pantry. Um, each year, we fed over 15,000 people. Um, we we had special, um, you know, deliveries that were made with intentionality for folks during particularly holiday seasons to make sure no one didn't go without food. Um, when, when, when folks, um, I don't know if you remember, during that difficult time, there were people, uh, we were going through a, a scare um, with the nation around, you know, um, jobs and, and things of that nature. And we began to mm-hmm. say, look, we need to have a social safety net and we gave funding to folks whose jobs were on the lines and who did not, we're not sure they were going to get paid when um, we had the furlough. Beyond that, we you know, we we began to help folks who needed uh, access to capital for housing security. And so uh, we, we in many situations, we paid back rent for folks who would, would have been evicted from their homes. Um, and so for me, it was how do we make the gospel of Jesus Christ real in the lives of people? Um, And we work with our partners in government and and, in philanthropy, our partners uh, in industry. Um, You know, I mean, we partnered with some folks where Uber provided free rides during the pandemic so that people could get around and we provided that through the church. Um, And so we were trying to be very intentional about what we needed to do in this particular moment to make sure that folks had what they needed. Um, and in doing that, um, we, we, we knew that once the vaccine came about, there were going to be some real issues. I mean, we, we are all aware of the Tuskegee experiment and other ways mm-hmm. the healthcare system has not always been good to Black folks and people of color. Um, and so we knew that the challenges before us had to be real. Um, and, and we had to actually address them with intimacy, with compassion, and with understanding and with, with education. And so we partnered, uh, we, we brought in a physician to really take live questions before the pandemic before the vaccine right before the vaccine was about to drop and we went through every single question we uh, we we stayed up all night we had over 900 people attentive on that uh we we were we we eventually partnered with Boston Medical Center and we stood up a vaccination clinic in the church uh and in Shaw and Hester Hall um we vaccinated almost over 20 2500 people in the in there we had um it was an amazing partnership and we were able to vaccinate so many people um and and i was one of the first people to get vaccinated just to let people know that this was safe um this was not a ploy this was not a joke you know we, we lost over a million people during covet and then you know during during covet not many churches were positioned the way we were um, i took as many funerals as i possibly could do um to the detriment of my own health and wellness Um, because I know people were hurting. Um, You know, it was hard to do funerals where you were on Zoom in a funeral home and everybody has to watch um, through a screen or you only have five people or 10 people in the room. That was hard for families, man. That was hard. Or people couldn't find a space because maybe that church couldn't open up safely and they needed a safe space to have their services. And we were blessed to stand in the gap. And so I think, for us, it was about how do we make sure that we survive this um, as best we can and help folks get through it. The next piece of this is like, how do we have continue that further impact? We have a preschool at our church. We have an after-school and summer enrichment program. Um, we have a food pantry and a thrift shop. Um, and we continue to do this work. We do both local missions, but we also do global missions. Uh, we have an orphanage in Honduras that we support each and every year. And we, we give them uh, much love and support and funding for uh, development projects in their area, as well as food for the young people and, and clothing. Uh, we have a school in Liberia that we support. Um, and we uh, recently someone stole this area. They only have a water pump someone stole the piece that would allow the water to be pumped in the community. And uh, 12th Baptist Church stood up and we we gathered the funds and we replaced that. Um, When people have had issues all across the country, when there have been major issues, we've been willing to to gather funds to do that work. Last year, I think we we are uh, as a faith community, we're one of the largest givers to the United Negro College Fund, and uh, and internally as well, we gave over sixty something thousand dollars away um, for for scholarships to our young people and our church, and uh, and and that's a part of who we are. Um, we, we've, we've continued to do this work and we continue to do that We have a Girl Scout troop and they've they've already had my thin mitts ready for me when cookie season <laughs> came <laughs> so so we, we we try to do that I think where we're going is how do we have a greater impact um, We have affordable housing that we provide to residents and we we want to scale that. We we know that the housing is an issue and we wanna create more accessible affordable housing in this city. Uh, We wanna create more spaces for commercial development uh, and for folks uh, to have opportunities to to be uh, uh, entrepreneurial as well as to support those who are already doing the work and just need the space. Hmm. Uh, We're continuing to want to build a space and a church that can continue to service the community. Um, For years, Metco used our space and for years the NAACP used our space. And so, you know, we want to continue to create more spaces for our community, but also more spaces for our church and how do we continue to grow our community. The blessing of COVID is that we've been able to grow exponentially. Uh, one of the projects that I've been working on as of recent is really serving our seniors. Um, so many of our seniors have been neglected during the season and during this process and, mm-hmm. and really struggled uh, from connection. And so we were really worked on uh, amplifying our spaces uh, so that it can be more accessible. One of the things that we're going to be moving on uh, as of recent is getting, uh, we've been having classes. We have a Zoom class for anybody who wants it, but particularly our seniors who were struggling with Zoom and these other features that are arguably here to stay. Um, And then uh, when you think about, you know, we're going to be getting, working on a project where we're getting all of our seniors' uh, laptop computers um, and doing the training for them to try to connect and close that digital divide that we have. um, And and we have seniors training seniors. And it's a beautiful thing uh, to see that process of intentionality. And then we're really digging deep on on, on, on our, our investing in our young people. Um, creating more opportunities for our young people, uh, hiring and, and giving programming and, and, and really shaping and molding the future leaders of this city. But most, the last piece is really telling our story. Uh, Greg, this is what's important. Um, there's a story to be told of uh, Black resilience, of Black history, um, of Black love, uh, of Black advocacy. And I think um, one of the stories that this nation deserves to hear is the 12th Baptist Church story um, one of the conversations I think you no know, me and you have had previously? Is that the, the reason why it's so hard for people to come to this city is because what the nation hears about it is not consistent with what's happening on the ground? Absolutely. And those stories have been either suppressed or erased or have not been given the air to tell it. And so, um, you know, for me, you know, apart from that, that spirit of advocacy that comes from me, is pushing through that. You know what I mean? And saying, you know what. Let's do what we need to do to tell these stories of folks who have been advocating for years. I always say uh, it's been black folks in in Massachusetts since uh, since the first folks came to this country and yeah. so and so um, it's hard to even tell this story. Um, and how can we even believe a narrative um that only tells one limited scope of this city? Um, Black history has been here before many of other people have even gotten here, and we've got to be able to tell that story and lift those voices and make sure that our voices are heard. Um, is it, that that important for us? And that's what we need to do.
0: So it sounds like, in addition to real estate development and and helping all these other people that you might be getting into into to production in in the arts as well. You know, what I mean, and kind of showing that things up. And which which to me is like. When I hear you talk about 12 and, and, and all the things that you guys that you all are doing over there, it just it's really kind of almost like a reimagining of what people think the church should be doing. You know, what I mean, I like the even the idea of like, OK, you're everything you're talking about is what we expect from the church and even more. Like you know, the idea that you're teaching the seniors how to use Zoom, so now they can see their grandkids. Because that, you know, you got to think. You, that's one of the things that that disconnection is mm-hmm. is part of what makes it difficult for for our folks as we as we get older and our lives are busy, but if you can get in on Zoom. You know, that's it, it, it. We laugh about that, but it's something that keeps them feeling rooted and and connected to the community and to their families as well. So that's definitely something that we can we can all stand behind, you know.
1: Well, you know, it's funny you said um, this past weekend. So in our church, we had we had five centenarians. We're down to four. We lost one this past year. The oldest member of our church is Miss Pauline Thomas. She's 105 years old. This past weekend, wow. um, and so um, she's Miss Bell, Miss Clara Bell, who we celebrated on the Embrace as mother, and wow. uh, and her their their ancestors were actually married by the first pastor to 12th Baptist Church, Linnie Grimes. Wow. And so when we talk about this history, I always talk about how history is not just um, something that was you know something we can we can see in the distance. It's something that lives with us right now. And, uh, and we celebrated her 105th birthday in person and on Zoom. And we were on Zoom with family all across the nation. And I was just thinking, like, she's been a member of our church for, I think, 95 years. And so um, how long she's seen six different pastors. She saw Reverend Shaw. Reverend Hester, Reverend Haynes, Reverend Jared Fife, and me, right? And so she saw, you know, the last five pastors um, and two of those guys were 40-year guys. So uh, she's been around a long time, um, or she came in on the back end of one person and, and seen, and she's still here to, with us today. And I think about the importance of storytelling, mm-hmm. of narratives, of how many stories have we missed? by not telling each and every story and lifting those voices up. And so it's very important for us. Um, and, and it's important for us to do that work.
0: And I, and listen, and today is an example of that storytelling. Thank you so much for for joining me. it's been a long time coming and we didn't even listen. And there's a, there's a, there's another hour and some change that we can, uh, that we didn't even get to your rap. We didn't even get to your rap career. You know what (laughs) I'm saying? I didn't tell you about that, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you, back
1: you, back you in the day. I... Yeah, you
0: slipped up and let me know about that. So we're going to say that you know, for the next that was time you come on the we'll show. will come back.
1: I'll come back. I'll come back. You know,
0: uh, Yo, I, I appreciate you so much for taking the time to join likewise, us, man, and just man. sharing likewise. so much of this journey. And it, it's so great to hear so much of what you came through and kind of the vision of where, where 12 is going in the future. And I, I appreciate you so much for being a part of the good trouble podcast,
1: man. Well, I look forward to continue to get into good trouble with you, man. And I, I think we're in a moment, we're in a window and we should take advantage of that um, and really do the work of making sure that we bring about um, true justice, telling our stories, And most importantly, man, wholeness. I think that's what we seek, wholeness. So appreciate you, brother. Let's keep keep getting in good trouble together.
0: Yes, that is the plan. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible story. Our guest, Reverend Reverend Willie Bodrick, has been just giving us a, a wealth of information. And I'm so happy that he's here. And listen, you guys tune in. Make sure you're here for the next episode of Good Trouble.